Happy Father's Day, by the way. Any any uh, any dads in the room? A couple dads, a couple dads. There we go. One dad, no way. Come on, I'm a dad. I can point out all the dads actually right now. I bet. But I, but I could my name. Uh, glad you dudes are here. You are a rare bunch. Uh, fathers that show up to church. Uh, no, I'm, I'm teasing on the dads there. Um, it's also Juneteenth, by the way, and I want to point that out real quick. Uh, we, you know. Uh, the, this morning's com- Book of Common Prayer says, Blessed are the feet that give good news. And on this day in 1865, good news came to some people. It was really good news for them uh, because freedom was proclaimed for them. And as followers of Jesus, we, we still are proclaiming freedom for others in all sorts of spaces and even to one another in our own lives. And so, so yeah, so never shy away from stepping into the kind of freedom that Christ speaks of and points us to. And that's a, that's a whole new layer of freedom. And um, yeah, so we just celebrate that as well. So glad you guys are here. We're in the book of Acts, which has been a lot of fun so far. Uh, Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. We've got some Bibles around the room. We've got some folks with Bibles ready to hand out. If you need one, we got you. Um, But my hope is that you guys by now will have uh, gone to the local bookstore and bought a Bible maybe, or gone to grandma's house and asked her for one. Um, Pending translation. Um, yeah, so if you've got Bible questions, anyways, uh, of any kind, um, feel free to ask them. Those comment cards around the room, that, that's one reason why they're there, but you can also just come find me or somebody else on the team. But if you need a Bible, just one of these, and um, somebody will bring you one. All right? Acts chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. And I'm Gavin, by the way, if I didn't introduce myself already. Um, so, let me... Let me pray into this moment that we're going to share together. Jesus, this moment is yours because you have come victoriously and your life transcended the 32, 33 years that you were here. You are still here. And due to that, Christ, we acknowledge you and we turn ourselves towards you now. May your spirit, your spirit, Christ, speak to us. We thank you. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, Yeah, chapter 2, verse 22 through 36. This is a longer text than like what we've been in. I've been used to kind of doing like four or five verses, but today I was like, ah, let's just tackle like a big section. Um, I'm going to do the best with it that I can. When I do that, I always... um, risk oversimplification so i apologize for any of you theology nerds or you know if you're out there um yeah catch you know catch all my misses and uh post them online somewhere um that'd be cool all right so uh we're gonna i'm just gonna dive into we're gonna read it fellow israelites listen to this jesus of nazareth was a man accredited by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did among you through him As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him this, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 
Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with your joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, second time we heard that, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is still here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. So seeing, <coughs> excuse me, what, what, what is to come, or excuse me, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. I, this is Peter's first sermon he ever gave, and I've, I'm, I've broken it into three sections. Last week we started it. Just as a reminder for those of you that weren't in the room, the first sermon that the church ever gave was on the topic of whether or not they were drunk, which is pretty remarkable for the church to start there. That's a great foot to start on, okay? Gives me a lot of confidence. I feel like I can come to you with anything. Peter deliberates, though, out of that message, something uh, so uniquely beautiful and powerful that the matter of whether or not they're drunk or not is just is, is brought down low. Because what's truly terrifying is not whether or not a few people are, are um, you know, drinking too much, but it's the fact that God is bringing together and empowering people that you don't expect in that society to be together or empowered. And that was radically good news. So you might confuse that for drunkenness, but we're just going to call it the work of God, okay? And so, well done, Peter. And he keeps going now, and he, he, he takes a turn that just like any good pastor should take. And, and we get this cue. In fact, I remember myself in college learning about this. And it was so, so elementary, right? But it was like, hey, my professor was like, hey, I'm going to teach you a bunch of stuff on preaching but the number one thing I can teach you is I just want you to learn how to beeline to Jesus. Like in your sermons, you got to beeline to Jesus. And I remember like, okay, cool. Um, and yet, that's exactly what Peter does here. He says, okay, so now that we've kind of dealt with this issue of like crazy, let me talk to you about Jesus because we need to make sense more importantly of that, of what's taking place in light of Jesus. And, and Peter is wanting to straighten it out, get that theology right, if you will. And the best way to do that, seemingly to Peter, and I just have to agree with him, and I'll say it for you, the best way to get to figure it out is to just put Jesus at the top. 
Put them, put them right at the top. And I'm not just talking about the top of the sermon. I'm talking about the top of all things. And that's what Peter's doing here because he's taking all of the things that the fellow Israelites would have seen as significant and important, the things that they were reaching to and looking towards, and saying, oh, that, that stuff over there, the promised Messiah and Lord that you're reaching for, hoping for, yeah, that's Jesus right at the top. And, and, and that's causing them, just as it's caused us at some point in our life, or maybe not yet, but hopefully today or later, to go, yeah, what is at the top? What is Lord and Messiah? What is, and, and by the way, Lord and Messiah, let's just use like everyday language for a second. Lord, what is, what is our ruler, okay? What is our savior? And, and again, I'm, I'm always risking oversimplifying, but, but the Lord, ruler, Messiah, Savior, okay? That's the two fundamental questions, and that's also the two fundamental modes that each person, us, and the Israelites tend to fall into inappropriately for ourselves, whether we realize it or not. Or we place things in those categories, whether we realize it or not. So you just have to start asking yourself for a second, what is it that is ruling your life? Now that, again, might feel like, oh, that's too big of a topic, but well, take it down to the simple. What is it that is directing your steps? What has power and control and influence over your life? And it's not to say that there's not appropriate authorities in the world, truth is one of them, right? And it comes in all sorts of forms. But embedded behind that truth, if we have good eyes, which would mean that we are not lords ourselves, we would notice that even embedded in the truth is this greater truth, this deeper, more powerful truth, this logos, this great and wonderful thing. And, and when we just try to sum it all up, keep it real simple... Jesus at the top, right at the top, both ruler and savior, which is how he ends this section. He, he's telling us, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And in, in that one statement, and maybe we would argue in, in, in verse 33 and 27 possibly, you have almost the entire New Testament laid out for you. And Peter's just like, Putting it right there. If we move from Jesus at the top, okay, as we often do, we can get trouble. Okay, and let me let me let me explain how this I think works for us. We start with Jesus at the top, often in a profession, right? I believe in Jesus. Right? We call him Lord. And yet, we know, and, the, and the, the audience here, at least the disciples would know, because they hung out with Jesus, that Jesus said at one point, hey, you might call me Lord, right? But unless you do what I say, I'm not actually Lord, okay? And so, so we start with this profession, which is where we should start. It's where we begin. But then we have to keep him at the top. Keep Lord, Lord. But typically, we, we, we move 
down the hill. We, we move down the hill. Sometimes we go left. Sometimes we go right. Sometimes we say, well, basically God loves me because I'm living well, right? I'm just being a good person. I'm doing everything right. And when we move towards that place, towards that kind of thinking, that legalism, if you will, our faith is not based on what Christ has done. It becomes a little more based on what we've done. And <coughs> excuse me, I bring that up here because a part of the issue that's being worked out here is an authority issue. And, and, and for the Israelites, for a long time, they've been waiting for Lord and Messiah, and so they've been filling in those spots in inappropriate ways. And, and again, we do this ourselves. We become self-righteous. I've been there. I've had seasons of my life where I'm there. And I'm, I, 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 of course, when you're there, you don't think you're there, right? When, when, when you can't see the speck in your own eye kind of there. But, but that place is a place where I'm still Lord. Yeah, I profess Jesus as Lord, but I've trickled down the hill into that self-righteous place. It's more about what I'm doing. And because it's about what I'm doing, I can tell you about what you're doing. I can uh, straighten you out if you'd like. And usually the person that's there has no problem doing that, whether you ask for it or not. That's one way you can remind them that, hey, who's at the top? Who's at the top? But we can also go from the top down the other way where we don't become Lord, but where we become Messiah. And see, that's how this strange thing works. Going down the other way, God loves me no matter what I do. And we start to become a bit relativistic. We move ourselves to the top. Because we can kind of do whatever we want. Because, hey, God's sort of sorted it out for us. Jesus picks up after us. He's, he's taking care of this thing. And again, like, I, again, I'm, I'm oversimplifying here, okay? But that's an attitude. That's a place people live. Legalism says Jesus may be Lord, but I am Messiah. I save myself because I do good things and that's why I'm saved. Right? Because of the, I'm keeping the command, I'm doing it right, I'm saved. Relativism says Jesus may be Messiah. He might be a Savior, but I'm Lord because I can do whatever I want. And God will still save me. You see, we need both. Messiah and Lord. Without both, you're going to become one of them. Without Jesus being both, we become one of them. And Peter just says, nope, Jesus at the top. Lord and Messiah. Lord and Messiah. And, and, and this Lord and Messiah has all sorts of meaning. And, and, 
And I started there because I wanted to get it on the ground where we're at. But, but for, for the fellow Israelites, this, this is a charged statement. It has targeted meaning. And, and he, quotes, he quotes David to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. That the one that you've been sort of using as the template, that, that this is where our king or Lord or Messiah is going to come from, has come. And he's connecting the dots. <clears throat> Which means that now... Anything else that was taking that place, whether it's religious leaders or the, the Pentateuch or you name whatever your things are that are Lord and Messiah in your life, we, a new boss is in town. In light of what's taking place, in light of what you've seen happen, you must recognize that your own papa talked about this. And now it's here. And, and not, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David, yes. But that one who is risen from the dead, whom we've all seen, as it says, <coughs> you also killed. The rightful Lord and Messiah of Israel, we killed. All this has taken place. God's spirit pouring itself out, the speaking in tongues, the winds and fire, all that stuff we've been talking about the last few weeks because of this resurrection. That, that Jesus took that killing and yet defeated it. We put Jesus at the bottom and God put Jesus back at the top. And Peter's like, I'm just saying. You can put yourself back at the top. Or the appropriate response would be to turn and put your faith in Lord and Messiah. Because Jesus was dead, but death could not keep a hold on him. The agony of death could not keep a hold on him. I don't know a single human that knows how to make that leap outside of the appropriate placement of Jesus as Lord. Because in that space, we can be like Peter, as, or excuse me, like David, as Peter's pointing out. Look, David even talked about dying and not being worried about decay anymore. Because something new is coming into the world that dealt with all the things that we've been trying to figure out. And it's not just what happens after we die. It's the decay that's happening in you right now. It's the decay you see in the world. It's the corruption in the Roman Empire. It's all of this stuff, the death and dying and all the reminders of it. How many reminders of death did you get this week? Not just in the news, but in, in, if you look for it, it's kind of everywhere. And in all those spaces, something about this resurrection, this 
escaping the agony of death that couldn't hold on to Jesus helps us transcend the decay. The present decay and the future decay. The usual outcome of death, of course, is decay, abandonment. But now, in our dying world, there's a new possibility with Jesus as Lord and Messiah. The normal decay and corruption of the body has new life being breathed into it, new power being poured out. Just as Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, isn't dead, we are no longer dying. And that's what verse 33 really sums up. Excited, excuse me, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus is alive. Okay, he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the Spirit of Christ is now alive in you. Now, it says, this has happened. So quickly, the church understood the significance of Jesus at the top. But, but as, as again, and it just needs to be clear, Jesus didn't start at the top. Jesus started at the bottom. He came in weakness. And, and we put him to death. We placed him at the bottom. At every stage of the process, we see the wickedness and the corruption. I'll quote N.T. Wright for just a moment. He, he says, In Judas's betrayal, we see it. Peter's denial of the false charge, the kangaroo court, the cynicism of the Sanhedrin, Pilate's dismissal, the crowd baying for blood, the mocking of the soldiers, and even the one crucified next to him. The path that took Jesus to his, pet, to his death was marked by all kinds of evil doing its worst to him. Jesus was at the bottom, at the worst of the worst. He subjected himself to the worst of the worst. And now Peter is making it clear that the way God saves us is by saving us in the worst of the worst, where evil reaches its height and God reaches down low. He goes to that low place. Because somebody had to go there. You see, redemption, resurrection, salvation for us, only happens as far as Jesus is willing to go to the reaches of death. How do you reclaim the whole thing without experiencing the whole thing? Jesus goes to where the world is willing to murder the innocent. He goes to the place where where the world is willing to murder not just the innocent, but its Lord and Messiah. Jesus becomes weak and takes on the world's strongest and his weakest through love and non-resistance. 
He took the full force of evil upon himself. God became, became man, okay, to save man. God took on man's worst to deliver to man God's best. He received what we deserve so that we could receive what we do not deserve. He took the fall of man so that we could have the resurrection of God. Jesus came in weakness and then gave his spirit in power. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And when you put Jesus at the top, by your faith in him, all of our sins, all the wickedness, all of the, 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 the echoes of death fall on Jesus. And all of God's blessings fall on you. That's the good news here. That the worst that you've done falls on Christ. And God's best falls on you. That's radical. Hallelujah. Radical, Peter. It really is. And I risk sounding like Calvinist for a second. Don't mistake me for that. And that's not a knock on Calvinist. But I'm just not sure we deserve it. But as a friend of mine said, God desires you. He desires you. It's not an issue of whether you deserve it. It's the fact that God desires you. He likes you. He wants you. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. And he knows that to have you He's got to have all the ick of you as well. And so he takes it. I, he, takes, he takes the thing that you can't even face. He takes the thing that I don't know how to put up, deal with in my own. I can't stand hanging out with me sometimes. <laughs> and Jesus just is like, but I desire you. Can't you tell? This is good news. So I invite us to receive Jesus, Amen. to take him on. Amen. He desires you. Hallelujah. So go ahead, start professing. Yeah. Start there. And then, you know, just one step at a time. Follow Christ. Call out, Lord, Lord, and Messiah. But let him be at the top. Amen. All right, let me pray. Heavenly Father, this, this, this work of yours is, oh man, it, it goes through and through. It goes through our worst, our heaviest, our hardest, our strongest. It, it pierces through the things that we can't fathom, those, those hills in front of us that we, we can never imagine facing. And somehow, some way, God, you distill in the midst of our decay goodness and hope and possibility a new life. And I just ask that that would be true today for every single person here, God, that, that we would all just give ourselves over to you this morning, Christ. And like, whether we've got it all figured out in our heads, 
or we're all figured out in our bodies or our hearts. Like, like we just start at this place of, okay, okay, Messiah, save me. Okay, Lord, lead me. And, and I think, Lord, I think that would be enough to help us begin this journey with you. Thank you for the empowerment that you give us, God. Thank you for your word. And thank you for our new brothers and sisters in Christ in this room today. In Jesus' name.